The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for February 21st, 2019, the Feel the Burn edition. I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm in Washington, D.C., not in a studio, in my own house for a change. So it's a house podcast for me. Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and John Dickerson of CBS This Morning are together in New York. Hi, guys. Hey. Oh, yeah. Hello. And we're happy your refrigerator got delivered safely. My refrigerator got delivered safely, although the door opens on the wrong side. Ugh. I oh, no. That flipped. So it goes. It's huh. a little weird that you're doing a anyway. podcast from inside the refrigerator, but. <laughs> It'll be not hot takes. It'll be cold takes. On this week's show, the president's emergency declaration, will it survive first contact with the courts? Then Bernie Sanders announces his candidacy for president. And Elizabeth Warren announces her huge policy proposal. I'm excited about both of those things. Let's talk about them. And then the fight between Amazon and New York City. Who won when the tech giant abandoned its plans to build a big campus in Queens, New York? Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. And a reminder, dear friends, that we have two live shows coming up. On Wednesday, March 27th, we will be live at the Lincoln Theater here in Washington, D.C., and it's a special early access to Emily's new book, Charged, which is going to be the hit of the season. So you want to get it first. You can hear about it first, see it first, talk about it first. Go to slate.com slash live for information and tickets to that show on March 27th here in DC. It'll be a regular show plus extra book stuff. And then on Friday, April 12th in Charlottesville, Virginia, as part of the TomTom Festival, we will be live in front of the good people of Virginia. So go to slate.com slash live for tickets to that Friday, April 12th show as well. It is an emergency since we taped last week, or actually shortly after we taped last week, President Trump declared an emergency at the border, announced he was going to take billions of dollars set aside for military uses, military spending, and instead deploy it to build his border wall. Remember, of course, that Mexico was going to pay for that wall, that Congress explicitly voted not to fund it, that it will require a huge appropriation of private property of people who live along the border, that it will deprive funding for projects explicitly funded by Congress, and that Trump himself has said he didn't need to build this wall now anyway. He's going to do it. So, Emily, let's start. What are the legal challenges to Trump's emergency declaration? What are they based on? Will they succeed? Oh, there are so many of them. 16 different state attorneys general have sued. Um, Their main complaint is about the separation of powers that basically, uh, as you said, Congress had decided against appropriating this money. The Constitution gives Congress the power of the purse. And so by flying in the face of congressional will, the president is uh, trampling all over the Constitution. There are lawsuits by the people whose property is going to get taken and by a Native American tribe that's right on the border, part in Mexico and part in the United States. Uh, Along with the separation of powers argument, which is a kind of grander, more constitutional principle about, you know, how we're supposed to divide up government, the responsibilities of government, there are more technical questions about the National Emergency Act and then about the statutes underneath that act, which are the particular vehicles through which this money will be appropriated. So, you know, to me, the sort of grand constitutional principle seems like a pretty good argument. The power of the purse is the main way that Congress exercises power. And when you 
take it away from Congress. That really does change the balance of power among the branches. So I suppose we could start there. Uh, But I do think it's worth getting a little into the weeds of the statutory arguments, too, because they may in the end prove to be the winners in court. It's sort of easier to say, ah, 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 um, you know, in the substatute, it says that you can only um, move money from one pot to another uh, for something that requires the use of the armed forces. Does this wall really do that? Like those are the more technical but also potentially um, helpful legal arguments for people challenging this wall building project and the way it's coming about. If I could just weigh in on the separation of powers thing. Um a lot of people believe that the separation of powers is the genius of the American system that, um, you know, back in 1787, that was the real innovation um, and making sure that um, all of the things they were worried about, the mob getting too powerful or the king, you know, president becoming a king, becoming a monarch, all of it was going to be worked out by a system in which the power was shared. And so it's not just this specific case in which the president is doing something Congress has sent a clear signal about. It's not just that Congress has the power of the purse, but in this case, Congress has sent a signal by not giving him the money he wants about its intent. And in sending that signal, they are, as representatives of the people, protecting this idea that the power is shared and that when the signal is sent from one portion of of the government that has that power, it cannot be squashed by another portion. And it is important for the specifics of the case, but also important for the way in which Congress, which has been supine in a lot of instances, needs to struggle off the mat and reassert itself as a co-equal branch of government. And yet the National Emergency Act with Congress passed in 1976 doesn't seem to be protecting Congress very effectively because it doesn't define an emergency anywhere, which suggests that the president can just say it an emergency is whatever he wants it to be. Well, that you have two separation of powers failures here. One is the, the kind of um, giving over in the, in the Emergency Act which they did a while ago, which is handing over some of their power. But then specifically in this case, couldn't Congress argue... Yes, you have the National Emergencies Act, but this is a case in which a clear signal has been sent by Congress because in previous emergencies, the president has declared them, but Congress has not sent an unambiguous funding signal in the way they have in this case, which is, I I think, what makes this unique and therefore uh, in some people's minds makes it kind of an open and shut case in terms of the separation of powers. Actually, John, let's dig into that legislative side question, because the House and Senate will take a vote on whether to condemn, whether to forbid, bar this emergency. And there's likely not a veto-proof majority to do that, but they will – they ought to take this vote, and it will certainly pass the House. Do you think if it passes the House and passes the Senate that that is a strong enough signal? If if it even gets just like a – you know, a small handful of Republican senators it needs to get a majority in the Senate, that that sends a strong signal? Or does this, is this something which really is is an occasion where 90% of the legislature has to stand up for something? Otherwise, otherwise, we've lost something important in the constitutional system. I guess I don't really know, because it, it depends what the president then does. Um, and then what uh, what the court and then what the courts do. So you could imagine a weak signal coming from. I mean, Congress has been sending weak signals for the last I don't know you, Low these forty many fifty years. years. Yeah. So so uh, my instinct is to say no. That even if there's a, a shoulder that comes struggling off of the the comfortable mat of um, 
supine repose, um, it's likely to sl- you know shrink back down because a lot of the co- a lot of the power Congress has handed over to the executive is because they're afraid of taking tough votes or having um, taking positions that will be unpopular, and so this is a self activating repose. So I suspect in general it'll go back down, but the courts will have a moment to say whether the president overstepped his bounds here, and that might be the thing that assert that draws the bright separation of power line more than any act Congress takes. In fact, it's almost, I think you could be pretty much certain that if you get a situation in which the president is stopped from doing what he wants to do, it'll be the court decision that um, reaffirms separation of powers more than Congress protecting its own prerogatives. Emily, emergencies are what dictators do. It is a number one method in, in, in Dictatorship 101, the class that you can take at University of Phoenix, the number one lesson is declare an emergency. It arouses the public. It creates an abnormal situation. It tears down the rules. It tears down the normal barriers that protect minorities, that protect the functioning of the system. And and that opens a space for a dictator. Does this feel to you like a dictator move by Trump, that it's, it's an attempt by him to agglomerate huge powers? Or is this just he just hates to be a loser? And so he's doing it not because he he has some grander plan, but because he just wants a win. I'm torn about this one, because on the one hand, for the reasons John said, where the president is effectively overriding Congress, it it does seem like an expanding of the imperial presidency, which we should be concerned about. On the other hand, we've had lots of emergencies over the years. Now, you know, important asterisks, they were not in the uh, in the face of congressional opposition. They were basically like taking care of things Congress hadn't gotten around to yet. Um, and the notion was that you had to do something fast, like deal with swine flu quickly. But we do have this more benign or just kind of less important, less symbolically fraught tradition of national emergencies. And I think the other thing is politically, I do think this is the move of a weak president. You lose the legislative battle. And so this is like, obviously, a second best solution. So I think how worried about this is to be, I mean, I feel fairly worried about it because as a, you know, yet another um, erosion of norms about rule of law and separation of powers, it's, it's you know, clear and present. We can see it happening in front of us. On the other hand, will other presidents pick up this particular baton when Trump's approval ratings for doing this are so low and it seems like this kind of, you know, weak act of, like, revenge or just kind of uh, sour grapes? I don't know. Maybe not. John, uh, one other point just on the on what Emily was saying about um, emergencies. I mean, again, going back to the founders, what was their huge concern about this new office they were creating in the presidency? They needed to create an office that could act quickly and in emergencies, right? Shea's rebellion had happened. There wasn't one person who could go deal with it. But what they were terrified by, because they knew this was true about human nature, is that if you gave somebody power and gave them the ready-made excuse that you can use that power in emergencies, that they would then spend their time, because they were human— concocting emergencies uh, like the War of 1812 or the Mexican-American War uh, in order to then just, you know, gobble up power because then you basically get to do all kinds of things, including raise taxes and other things because there's an emergency going on. And this was so this was, again, like the key fear when they were 
putting pen to paper or I should say quill to parchment, um, trying to figure out how you make a government. And now that we have such instantaneous communication and people aren't out of touch for months on end, tromping around the frontier or wherever they went, why do we need to have this National Emergency Act at all? Like, how hard is it for the president to have to consult with, you know, the leaders of Congress before he or she does something? That really, I really wonder about that. Great point. Well, I think the the precedent for this, Emily, is very much the War Powers Act and the the Congress's abandonment of its obligation to declare war, be responsible for war. And when Congress sort of says we don't want to have to deal with war, yeah. they're basically saying we don't want to have to deal with anything ugly. And that and that invites a president to say, well, that you you if you don't want war, you don't want an emergency, you don't want the military, you don't want the border, you don't want any of this stuff. So there's an it. open space, and I. Yeah, and I, so I, I'm I'm really think the going back to this war making authority that Congress was so eager to give up because of things like Vietnam and and all that bad history that's created the problem. Um, John, why do you think there isn't more universal outrage among conservative legislators in particular about this massive executive overreach, this insult to Congress, and knowing as they must know that that one day a Democrat will try to do the same? Well, I think there is um, upset. I think they've been expressing it privately. Apparently, according to some Republican senators I talked to, I guess, three weeks ago now, when Mike Pence came, when the president was first floating the idea he might declare an emergency and Mike Pence came to speak to the Republican lunch, which is held every Tuesday, there was a lot of pushback and not from the usual suspects. So not just from, you know, sort of Susan Collins, um, uh, more, well, <laughs> at this point with Jeff Flake and Bob Corker gone, it's basically just Susan Collins, but, um, but came from constitutional conservatives who said, A, when Barack Obama did this kind of thing, we were outraged. And there's actually video of, of Mike Pence being outraged about this. But that's, then just in general, all of the things we've been talking about here about the separation of powers um, and the overreaching of an executive, they said this is counter to the fundamental things we believe. Why have they not gone public with that as much? Well, because of uh, the reason that uh, Bob Corker and Jeff Flake are no longer in the Senate, which is that regardless of what they believe as constitutional conservatives, they have seen steadily in the course of Donald Trump's ascension in the party, everything from the traditional views and conservative politics about about moral behavior, values behavior, budget deficits are no longer uh, a big deal. Foreign policy is no longer practiced in the way that it was traditionally practiced in the Republican Party. Trade policy has changed. And in all of those instances, Donald Trump has remade the party in his image. Yeah. And to and to confront him on that would be to, um, you know, get, get the base, you know, angry at you. Yeah, yeah. But you know what? Then they don't oppose it. Then they don't actually oppose it for them right. to for them to believe in private to to say oh this is an outrage but to be unwilling to spend one one gram or one ounce because they're an anti metric one ounce of political capital on it is worse than weak it is pathetic and they deserve no credit no honor no respect no nothing for expressing anything in private so uh, I, that, that is I worse agree. than I, I would rather they believed in it than that they than they disbelieve in it and don't talk about it. Because then they are complicit, utterly complicit in destroying the institutions that they they claim to speak for and claim to believe in. I know we're running out of this time, this topic, comma, but let me say one thing quickly, which is um, 
the president could have taken another road here, which is take the money that's available, not emergency money, but take about four billion dollars that he can use together that he's using from some of these other accounts, not engage in the emergency uh, debate and get, you know, closer to his five billion dollars. So some portion of this is, is having the fight for the sake of having the fight, getting the attention for being maximalist on the position that got him elected in the first place. And so we should just nod to that. I have another question to ask, I hope, to close this. I've been thinking a lot about President Obama's executive order um, extending some protection from deportation and work permits to the Dreamers and then to the parents and other close relatives of the Dreamers. So when President Obama did that, and he also, remember, flew in the face of congressional opposition— David, you were really critical of the sort of extending of presidential powers. And I defended Obama's actions as like, oh, nothing to see here. This is prosecutorial discretion. This is like classic um, executive deciding of how it allocates resources. And, you know, we can't ever try to deport everyone. So the Obama folks are just telling us who the priorities are. No big deal. I have to say I've been kind of rethinking my position about this because When you think about the kind of core problem here, I do think it is flying in the face of congressional opposition. And so, though there are distinctions between what Obama did and what Trump is doing now, and they matter, um, and I think what Trump is doing is a more imperial move, I still feel like it's worth kind of thinking through the comparison. Do you guys have any retrospective thoughts? Do you want to declare victory? I'm just sitting here. I'm just sitting here smugly. I'm dropping my mic. (laughs) I'm so glad. I did not remember. I didn't remember that conversation. But now that you say it, I'm. I'm. I recall it, and I'm glad I was on the side of justice and truth back then. Uh, no, I, <laughs> I agree with everything power. you just said. My uh, my reaction. I'm going to port over into the conversation we're going to have about Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren because I think it plays in that topic. Okay. I just want to say, it's not that, I mean, I still agree with the policy outcome of um, allowing the Dreamers and their families to stay in the country. It's the method of getting there and the kind of effect that that has on the system, even though what Obama did was different. It's not a national emergency, et cetera. You've done caveating. I'm done caveating. You've done apologizing for your apology. Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the Gap Fest and other Slate podcasts. And actually, our Slate Plus segment today is very apropos to what we just talked about. We we're going to talk about ways to improve Congress. If we could wave a magic wand, how would we improve Congress? We're going to come up with some super clever, out-of-the-box ways to fix our desolate, sad legislature. So go to slate.com slash Plus to become a member today. This episode of the Gap Fest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame. And I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. 
Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Bernie Sanders, the Vermont senator who has done more to change the Democratic Party than any politician, even though he is not himself a Democrat, announced that he is running for president. Sanders, who would be 79 when inaugurated in 2021, an old white guy with an irascible reputation. He advocates policy positions that are pretty far to the left of anything a Democratic nominee in recent years has has endorsed. Free public college, abortion rights, universal health care, stronger unions, higher minimum wage. He's a very exciting candidate because obviously he ran strong in 2016. John, let's start with you because you interviewed him for his announcement. What struck you from that interview you did for CBS? Well, I guess the first immediate thing that struck me is he's really running. This is not for anybody who thinks that, um, you know, this might be a message campaign or he's, you know, uh, what another candidate in another time would have said, I'm in it to win it. Um, so tactically, there it'll be interesting to watch the differences this time from last time. And he's not known to be a tactical candidate so much as a candidate of message and, and conviction. Um, and that is the message. The message is that he was Medicare for all before Medicare for all was cool. And that a lot of those positions you mentioned are actually mainstream Democratic positions now. Medicare for all, although there are quite a number of gradations. And then a lot of people who say they're for Medicare for all aren't really for Medicare for all. But um, paying for college, minimum wage, those are all, you know, family and child uh, leave. Uh, So the Democratic Party has come his way for sure. And his argument will be, I've believed these things my whole life. I believed them when they were quite unpopular. I believe them when we were being ridiculed. And um, that's why I have greater standing in a fight about this. His basic argument is if you really believe these things and you think the system needs to be not just tinkered with but changed fundamentally, that's what I have in my bones and to have devoted my entire career to. Emily, Sanders ran in 2016 as an insurgent against the Clinton machine, the big bad Clinton machine. What space does he occupy in 2020? Will he work well as a non-insurgent candidate? That's a really good question. I'm not sure. I mean, that was so much of the kind of extra sizzle of his campaign. It's kind of hard to imagine it without that. I don't think it's hard for him to differentiate himself from the pack. So that part seems to his advantage. And it was noteworthy that he raised so much more money than anybody else quickly, right? It was like $6 million, many of the donations from, you know, small donors. Um, And so that demonstrates some level of energy. And And yet, like, when you look at these very early polls, he doesn't seem to have some big surge behind him. On the other hand, I don't know, John, should we just be ignoring these polls right now? Yes. Ignore them. I mean, ignore them other than as kind of very light signals, A. B, the role they can play in letters and conversations the candidates have to have on the phone with donors, right? So donors really care about the polls, uh, though they shouldn't. Well, because they don't want to back a loser, right? Right. right. And so when you call up the donor and you say, well, I was, you know, I was a 14 in the Marist and 13 and rising in the, you know, and you come up with this crazy way of, um, of explaining how you're really on the march. Um, that'll make you know that'll get people to donate to you. And by the way, also there's a lot of people talking on cable. Uh, and what's better to talk about than meaningless poll numbers? So, I don't think we should um, care that much about what the polls are saying at the moment. One other thing I'll just throw in there, which is not exactly is about you know how fundamental is the argument going to get in the Democratic race? Is it going to be about whether the values of America and Jamel Bowie wrote a great. Um, piece about this this week, whether the values of America are inconsistent with 
the way the market in America works. Like the basic argument at the heart of what Sanders believes or uh, is it going to be more shaded and hidden? Because when you talk about the fundamental market forces and system and clash between capitalism and American values, you get into more charged territory and that can make that may make some people spooked. On the other hand, it may make other Democrats say, no, that is the fundamental question and thing we have to be talking about. And unless you are willing, A, to talk about it and B, to talk about it in very stark terms, you're not a real you're not really signing up for the kind of fight that Democrats need to have. I mean, Warren is trying to stand in that space, right? Because she's saying I'm a stone cold capitalist, but the rules are totally messed up and rigged against most people right now. And I know how to fix them. I'm like the person who figured out how screwed up bankruptcy law is and how it was hurting people in this way that nobody else noticed. And like, I know how to get under the hood. That's her argument is to try to kind of have both those things, right? Yeah, I think that's right. It seems a little more, um, and the and obviously the Warren Sanders uh, argument will be really interesting because it'll tell us something else about what voters care about, which is Sanders is is not it doesn't seem to me to be the under the hood guy no he's, he's just the guy he's saying like, blow it up well but not, he, he's I also mean. what he is focused on whatever's under the hood he's his argument doesn't seem to be like i know where this you know sprocket goes or whatever but he's the one who has been obsessed his whole life about what's under the hood now some people would say well so has elizabeth warren but it you know part of the fight in politics and i think will be an interesting thing to watch with democrats this time is the signal that comes kind of out of their chest rather than out of their mouth. That's what Donald Trump, by talking about the wall, was doing. It was that it was a symbol for his more anti-immigrant than thou position. And the the details of the business didn't really matter. I don't know whether that'll be true in the Democratic conversation, but I think that's one of the – Elizabeth Warren being passion and details, a little bit more in the detail than the passion. Bernie Sanders being passion, a little bit less on the details, although, you know, obviously they're both neck deep in both. And so voters are going to have to make a determination. Uh, I mean, it's not like Elizabeth Warren is a newcomer to these ideas. She's been spending her whole life on it. So she has conviction and passion. I don't want to suggest she doesn't. And Bernie Sanders certainly has plenty of details. I don't want to suggest that either. But I do think that's one of the ways people are going to kind of gauge where they come down on these candidates. I, Well, this sort of goes against your point, John, but I have not been as excited about a public policy proposal in a long time. Uh, I can't even finish the sentence than, than I am about uh, Elizabeth Warren's child care proposal. Oh, that's She's so a very Why? bold tell, proposal. Talk about that. Well, so, so Warren has essentially proposed um, making free and reduced price excellent child care available around the country so that if you are uh, you know, making a low or moderate income, it would be free. And no matter how much you're making, it would never cost more than 7% of your income. And do this with a massive federal subsidy uh, that would be paid for by a tax on extremely wealthy people, on the wealth of extremely wealthy people. And what I love about this proposal, which is obviously problematic, is that it, is, it, it works on all levels. A, child, children need better child care, like a, a strong, uh, well-trained, well-organized, safe space for a child is a is a place that a child can grow up and will have a better start in life that's obviously number one true number two there's a an enormous problem for almost all americans particularly americans who are poorer or middle class with affordable child care they spend 
disproportionate amounts on it. It spends take a lot of mental energy, money, psychological energy to find it. It is it's just a very difficult process compared to other countries. And so you're you're creating emotional friction on people's lives, financial drain on people's lives, and you're keeping women out of the workforce who would be in the workforce. So it seems to me like this is a policy proposal that will boost the economy, it will make parents happier and it will reduce inequality in a certain sense. And I think it's a it's a better idea than free college. It's probably a better idea than Medicare for all. It is I love it. So here's one of the things that'll be interesting to watch. Are the metrics you use to evaluate something ones that voters use and 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 even consciously versus subconsciously use to to evaluate these things? So for those who love all the things you just talked about, there's a wonderful, you know, kind of lots of good pieces to what Warren is suggesting. Others want to hear the the conviction about the disparities in America that um, make it impossible to change policy on a whole host of things, whether it's related to childcare or education or Medicare for all. Uh, and so when they hear Bernie Sanders talking or a Bernie Sanders like candidate speaking with, uh, you know, conviction and passion about the disparities in the American system, it may be something that people hook themselves to. Elizabeth Wharton, when, when she talked about it, it related to her own experience. And obviously we know in politics, people connect to policy ideas through seeing themselves in what the politician is saying. And she told this great story about breaking down as a, a, long, a young lawyer because she couldn't have find child care for her kids. And that'll be really fascinating to watch in the Democratic Party. I'm also interested in how explicitly feminist this proposal is. So, David, you sort of naturally said this will get more women into the workforce. And that has got to be true because we know that it's still usually mothers who um, stay home or pull back on work when they're kids. Not always, but usually. And, you know, Warren could have proposed a child tax credit here and then families would be free to use that either for daycare or for some one staying home to take care of kids. And that would be, you know, a a more neutral move to make in terms of affecting the rate of women's participation or the ease of women's participation in the workplace. So I'm interested that she picked on the side of encouraging work, explicitly women to work, and that there hasn't been a big backlash against that, which is that's what's so fascinating. And I think it's because Almost everyone's working. Like, she wrote the book about the two-parent income track. Well, we do live in a world in which almost everyone feels like both parents need to work. So let me ask you a follow-up on that, which is that I thought the backlash you were one, you were going to talk about was the idea that this is only a choice for a woman to make in a marriage. So the question is, do you find that she is basically arguing explicitly or implicitly, and then I'll throw Kirsten Gillibrand in this too, Basically, that her experience as a mother, as a woman, as a working woman, gives her standing in these debates. And again, implicit, she's not talking about the other candidates, but gives her a kind of standing that Bernie Sanders couldn't have, A. And B, is even asking that question out of bounds? Oh, I think it's totally fine to ask that question. Let's put all the gender questions on the table. I think that a male candidate could do it. He would have to do it differently, right? Where he probably wouldn't be talking about his own, like, breakdown at work, although he might be, but he would be talking about wanting to expand women's opportunities. I mean, look, also, we should think of this at the same time in gender-neutral terms, right? We can both recognize that women are more affected and say, like, wait, this is for everybody. Well, and I guess my my question is when a candidate talks about it in terms of their own maternal experience, Kirsten Gillibrand, that was the, the beginning of her message, they are choosing to play on these gender yes. stereotypes. I mean, 
so to ignore it seems to me to be kind of crazy. And and yet, I just asked quietly on on Twitter when Kirsten Gillibrand kept referring to herself as a young mom in her announcement. I thought, what what are you hearing out there, people? Why do you why do you think she's choosing to do that? The candidate is choosing very specific language. Why are they doing that? And. About 80% of the people responded like normal people. They had reviews and there was a whole multiplicity of views. And then 20%, 20%. said you would never ask that of, of a man. Um, but actually you might. Of course you would. was defining themselves as a young dad and choosing to do that. Or, uh, or an or, old dad. Or defining themselves as a, as an anything. When they choose to define themselves, you wonder, hmm, why are they defining themselves? So back to the original question. Do you think that these candidates are trying to generate the idea that they have standing? In other words, Kirsten Gillibrand is doing it explicitly. She's saying, because I'm a mother, I'm going to fight for your kids. So basically, I have more standing on this argument because everybody's policy proposals are going to be the same. So the differentiator is how passionate I am, how committed I am to this. And Gillibrand's argument essentially is, I'm more passionate because I'm a mother. I mean, that's her explicit take. Right, and there's just some political narrow casting going on right now because you can attain a certain status in the democratic field if you just had all the young moms in the country and they felt like you were their person you'd be psyched like as a starting ground right now that would be pretty good so i think the politics of that but i was talking about a different kind of backlash i was talking about the family values backlash which is like wait a second why are you paying for daycare why not just like give families this money and if someone a if a parent wants to be a stay-at-home parent, you should be making that just as possible a choice. Like the government shouldn't be nudging people towards work. My only thought on that, Emily, is that the, the value of what Warren is proposing is that total uh, institutions, widely spread institutions that, that huge swaths of society take part in are great for society. That's why there's such support for Social Security. That's why there's such support for public schools. It's why there's such support for highways. It's like things that everyone benefits from, everyone can use, that integrate lots of different parts of society together are really valuable. And that's why I think the what Warren is proposing is so appealing, is that it's saying this is something for all of us. It's going to be available to all of us. We're all going to meet there. It's going to be, a, it's going to be an agora, an agora of children, where we're all going to meet and uh, share this experience and and it makes it a universal experience which is valuable and we have fewer and fewer of those in american life so that's one reason i think it's a great proposal good point last week jeff bezos of amazon was a hero standing up to extortion <laughs> this week jeff bezos of amazon a villain as new york stands up to amazon's extortive efforts to get three billion dollars in subsidies in exchange for relocating a corporate campus to Long Island City or building a corporate campus in Long Island City in Queens, New York. So Amazon this week, or maybe last week, canceled its plans for HQ2, its HQ2 campus in the face of community opposition, giving up rather than fighting to build this campus and bring 25,000 jobs, plus maybe 15,000 jobs indirectly to this part, relatively undeveloped part of New York City. Amazon's estimates and the city's estimates, I think, or maybe the state's estimates say they would have returned $30 billion to the city and state in tax revenues, thanks to higher incomes, new jobs, all that good stuff. A great return compared to most of the corporate welfare. But, 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 but there was huge community opposition to it. So, Emily, is this 
is this uh, is this AOC and the progressive politics of the left sort of getting their first scalp? Is this the first great triumph of progressive politics that we've seen? That is certainly how they are presenting it. Um, and they're definitely doing a victory dance. I guess what I'm deeply curious about here is what you guys think about this outcome. Like, I thought the idea was to get a better deal out of Amazon, um, maybe to try to give them shame them into giving back some of these enormous tax breaks, maybe to get them to back off on their anti-union stances or something like easier, an easier give, like, you know, promising a lot of these jobs to people who live in the immediate neighborhood. I don't know. I, I thought this was a negotiation. And now Amazon has decided to pick up its toys and go home. I thought Amazon gave up very easily. They definitely could have stayed and fought. They probably would have lost something, but they could have stayed and gotten 95% of what they wanted, and people would have been very glad to have them, ultimately. I was surprised that it was just it was just so quick and easy. I think it just shows how much these Silicon Valley companies are used to being kowtowed to, used to getting exactly what they want on whatever terms they want. Personally, because I believe in gentrification and I believe in economic growth and and I want cities to thrive. I thought this was great for New York. It's made a lot of sense for New York. Now, actually, the benefits now may accrue to my home city of Washington, D.C., because Amazon may relocate a bunch of those jobs to, to Virginia instead of keeping them in, in New York. But I, I thought it was an own goal by New York. I talked to a housing expert in New York about this, and uh, this person made two points. Um, one was, to your point, David, the the problem with the gentrification is that what's happened now is you had an opportunity to basically take Amazon's money, the money brought in from uh, tax revenue coming in from Amazon, um, and work with Amazon to say, as a condition of your coming into our Long Island city, you're going to help us make sure that there is a big chunk of affordable housing for the people who live there already. We're going to need more inventory for your Amazon people, sure, but we're going to make sure that all this new money that's coming in and your new throw weight in the community will protect and and um, foster just the kind of economically diverse kind of uh, neighborhood that we all want. When you don't do that, what happens is the gentrification continues to take place. There is not new inventory. There's not new lots of new building that goes on. And so the people who are there now get pushed out by the gentrification as it continues on its natural path. Um, and so I, th- I found that interesting. The second point that was made was that that the New York politicians did not, if they were really wanting Amazon to kind of co- go through with this, uh, that particularly Mayor de Blasio should have um, really held them by the hand and made them meet with the community activists and been the um, shoehorn that got, you know, that got yeah. them into the area yeah. and really just didn't let go until it went through. I mean, it sort of seemed to me like there was this cultural disconnect, which relates to your point, David, about like Amazon not being used to being challenged, where the New York politicians were like, well, this is how it goes here. Like, welcome to town. And I think they expected Amazon to just like roll up their sleeves and like put their big boy pants on or whatever better metaphor there is out there and stick it out. Roll up the sleeves, put on the big boy pants. like two bad clothing um, (laughs) cliches all in one sentence. Don the hat of adulthood. Yes, thank you. Keep on going. Um, The culottes of... (laughs) 
consideration. Go ahead. But I have to say, I'm not sure from Amazon's point of view, like, why was it worth it? I mean, they can just... First of all, they can add a lot of these jobs in New York anyway, gradually. They can just sort of expand bit by bit. Now, they won't necessarily get all those tax breaks, but um, they can still do that if that makes business sense for them. And then they can put these other jobs in, you know, Virginia and Nashville and in Seattle. It just didn't seem essential that they have this particular headquarters. I also feel like my own rant about Amazon is like, okay, to begin with, I worry about how just giant it is. And second of all, I found this whole, you know, competition for reciting these headquarters to be just like a dreadful exercise in pitting localities against each other. I just hated it. It was so obnoxious to like watch all these poor cities try to court this like grand king and kind of embarrass themselves along the way. And then you create this, you know, inexorable race to like give away the entire farm in terms of tax breaks. And that was just bad and kind of, I don't know, to me, sort of soiling. And then to begin with, it really bothered me that Amazon picked New York City and essentially the D.C. metro area, two of the already like healthiest, most vibrant, techie kinds of economies we have in the country when going to so many other mid-sized cities, that's where those 25,000 jobs and all of the sort of glitz of Amazon could make a huge difference in terms of creating another hub in the country, a place where, you know, there's something exciting going on economically and in terms of tech culture. So I found that just like infuriating. Well, the that's beginning. the question is like, is it was that ever realistic? Is that ever possible? Amazon wants to go somewhere where they know they can have strong workforce and people are going to want to live. Amazon has the luxury of doing that. And and as a result, they they narrow their choices to places which have strong, well-educated workforces and where people want to live. And that did mean that all these cities, which which were so desperately and sadly trying to compete, didn't really have a chance. But I don't, I'm not sure how you solve that you don't problem. think that's on them? I mean, like, they I'm couldn't sure that, get a lot of great I, people to move to, like, Chicago or Minneapolis or Philadelphia. Philadelphia, of course, being my Chicago, Minneapolis, and Philadelphia are not— Charlotte? Ch- Atlanta? Those are rich cities, too. Yeah, but and, they're and, not, and, like— And I do, think that what's, I do think that what they're doing in Virginia is interesting, or what is happening in Virginia, which is that there's also an, a, kind of an explicit infrastructure and ev- education effort that's going along with it. So yes. that what Virginia gave in terms of subsidy was much more around— we're going to build um, build higher education around here that's going to supply high qualified highly highly qualified engineers to you so that's good for everybody and we're going to build infrastructure that's going to serve the whole community and that that seems to me like a you know if you're going to go about go around and do it do it that way um, now those are people who it's true those are people who don't live in rural West Virginia getting these degrees but it's it's uh, it does seem like a decent thing to do to put education as part of it. Yes, absolutely. I mean, this idea of like shaping the workforce, giving, um, spending the money on the things that are going to allow people in the region to take advantage of this influx of jobs does seem really smart and pragmatic. And New York wasn't doing that, right? Right. New York was not doing that. It was just this like straight up $3 billion tax break. Although I do realize some of that was automatically going to Amazon based on pre-established laws about how tax breaks work when you create jobs. John, also one final point here, which is so often the stories that we read about uh, corporate welfare for companies have to do with sports stadiums and generally helping sports teams. And I, for one, am glad. I was glad to see 
that this being directed towards a high tech company and not towards a football stadium? Uh, yeah, I mean, um, what I would like to have seen and would like to see somewhere is, and this gets back to the Sanders conversation, which is, is there a template for accommodation of these behemoths or is the very existence of them unaccommodationable or can, speaking in English, can no accommodation be made with a company that is this vast and large and and is the size of such a company a threat to the American system? Because you can never you never have enough leverage to work with Amazon. Therefore, you can never protect the values that you think Amazon might trample. And if that is an argument, if that can never be done, then do you have to step back one or do you have to change your approach and say companies of that size should never exist because they will always have more leverage than the people and the people's representatives and therefore it will create a perpetuating system of inequality and i don't that's the that's the big argument i think inside of the amazon thing that's not getting teed up but that hopefully um gets teed up in the in the democratic campaign hopefully i say for the because there you might find an answer or or at least have the conversation out loud which i think um should be had so let's go to cocktail chatter when you're at a desolate long island city bar not a job in sight nothing to do no amazon workers convivially clustered around you ordering beer what are you going to be chattering about emily to the people who are not in the bar with you um i was really interested this week in an unanimous Supreme Court decision um, saying that states and local uh, cities can go too far in um, civil forfeiture and taking the assets of people who they've convicted of a crime. Um, Just totally interesting to like have them pick up the Eighth Amendment, which bars excessive fines and say, hey, you know what? Through the 14th Amendment, this applies to the states, this like hugely popular and lucrative process by which a lot of law enforcement agencies raise money off the backs of the people they're prosecuting. You know what? There's a limit here. It doesn't mean that civil forfeiture is going to end, but it means that you can challenge it if it happens to you. Um, The particular plaintiff in this case, a guy named Tyson Timms, he had this minor drug offense he'd been convicted of selling $225 worth of heroin, and then state officials took his $42,000 Land Rover just totally out of proportion. So interesting, too, to see it be unanimous. There's a real libertarian as well as liberal appeal to um, limiting the government's power to do this kind of thing. And I just hope the Supreme Court starts looking at other pieces of the Eighth Amendment, particularly the one that's supposed to say that you can't impose excessive bail because we really have had no constitutional barriers on states and the way that they set bail. And, you know, there's a good argument about unaffordable bail as this burden that you're putting on poor people, like the idea that you're basically just putting people in jail before they're convicted of anything because they're poor. And that is not something the Supreme Court has previously expressed concerns about. But if you keep going down this Eighth Amendment path, perhaps you could get there. John, what is your chatter? Um, My um, chatter is about the 50-state study done by the Woodrow Wilson Foundation, um, which was about American civics understanding, and basically they they um, oh, yeah. they took a survey of forty one thousand Americans. They asked Americans to answer, I believe it was nineteen questions that are on the citizenship test, and Americans did super poorly. Vermont was the only state with a majority of people who were able to earn a passing grade in U.S. history. In Louisiana, only twenty seven percent were able to pass. But what I 
was interested in this. Wyoming was the number two state, by the way. If you're uh, and you um, you can see where your state falls by checking out the list on the Woodrow Wilson um, Foundation, but um, National Fellowship Foundation. Um, but what I what I started thinking about is what facts would you put on a test about American history and. What is the purpose of those facts? So, for example, one of the questions was how many amendments are there to the Constitution? And so what is the material benefit of knowing, A, that there are 27? And I basically think that because um, the prohibition amendments kind of cancel each other out, that there should basically just be 25. But anyway, that does um, – I'm not really I'm, – I'm not really actually being serious, but 25 is such a nice number. Anyway, oh, the neatness of it. Um, but what is the benefit of knowing that there are 27? And is there a benefit of knowing there are 27 versus – whether there are 23. I think I think there is, and is there a benefit in knowing that the Constitutional Convention took place in 1787 um, and not 1776? Um, I think there is, but I wonder what, um, A... It's pretty minor. I wouldn't have been able to tell you how many amendments there were. I thought there were 28. If you were given but a multiple-choice question, uh, uh, yes. I would have failed. You, you would have. No, you 23 no. versus 27, I would not have known Oh, really? Answer. No. Oh, because it was multiple-choice, I, I was fine, but I thought before... That's why you've never passed the bar, I guess. I have passed the bar twice. Thank you very much. They didn't ask that question. <laughs> yeah. She had to... She she passed it so much, she had to pass it again. She lapped <laughs> but the bar. Maybe that's okay, why you, you failed. She lapped the bar. Um, she her answers were so good. She she passed. She got a double passing grade. The only question is why I passed the bar since I have done nothing with my bar card ever. Yeah. Well, um, that's a good question. Um, yeah. So to your point, Emily, like, does it matter that you didn't know it was twenty seven, or because would twenty three? Because to me, twenty seven means. Uh, you know, we have at different times in American history had a revisionist impulse. And that's definitely the case with the difference between the Declaration and the Constitutional Convention, because the Constitutional Convention, they get together and they say, oh, my God, we did a terrible job the first time around. We're totally messing up this whole self-government thing. We are a mess. We need to fix it, which to me is quite um, something we should constantly be in touch with. Because I would like people to know you can amend the Constitution and that we have done that. I do not care whether they know whether we, how many exact times yeah. we have done that. Like, I would like people to know there are a bunch of people called Supreme Court justices, and it would be nice to know one or two of their names. But I feel like the sort of precise information, like, I don't know precise information about almost anything, and it, it gets, it's a lot to expect. Well, then the question is whether the precise information is a, is the center of a blast zone, which is to say, you know the precise information. Because and you know the Precisely. Other, yeah. You know all the other stuff around it. And so you know not only that there are 27, but that the Constitution can be amended and that some of the amendments have changed the course of American history and that the document which wrote in the original sin of slavery has been trying to fix itself over the course of its history and that and so on and so on and so forth. And so the question then is how big is the blast zone around the fact, which is ground zero, all of which is uh, stuff that um, interests me, and it's why I often spend a lot of time alone. <laughs> no one wants to talk about how many constitutional <laughs> amendments there are with John. He's taking quizzes by himself. Oh, well. I just want to say I got 100%. Yeah. Oh, God. Uh, so irritating. Wait, it's, not that, quiz. it's not that irritating because um, I got 102, and I'm not within 100 miles of the right, smartest process. if you process. got 100, yeah. that's less irritating yeah, no, somehow. It, because, because David gets 100 on all of those things. Yeah, no, I know. He's <sighs> amazing. He anyway. also gets 100 on, like, 19th century novel mem- and poetry memorization. I know. He's a, it's okay. all right. unpleasant. All right. Enough it's of that. unpleasant. <laughs> no, it's just envy-inducing. 
So my chatter is something I saw on Twitter, which is a 2018 paper uh, from where was it? It's from a sociological journal by Natasha Quadlin. It's called The Mark of a Woman's Record, Gender and Academic Performance Oh, my God. I wrote and about Quadlin- this article in a – well, I didn't – I brought it up in a Q&A that's posting in The Times today. I'm so glad you're talking about this. It's such an interesting piece of research. Oh. Go right ahead. So, yes. So Quadlin – uh, submitted job applications uh, that artificially manipulated applicants' GPA, gender, and college major. And what she discovered is that if you are a woman and you have a high GPA, you are penalized in the job market, especially in math, it turns out. Yep. That if you are a woman with a moderate GPA, a decent GPA, you will do well in the job market and people will often talk about your your sociable and outgoing qualities. But if you are a high-achieving woman with a outstanding grades, you will be punished. And it's outrageous. It's it's terrible. It's it, it's that women are being penalized for having good grades, and that is a incredibly stupid, counterproductive thing that we're doing. So fix that, people. Stop doing that. Also, one pungent detail. High-achieving male math majors are called back three times as often as women with the same grades. Wow. And the high achieving math grade women were called back less frequently than the moderately achieving women. Like that right. really blew me away. Yep. Like there's something. So in this Q&A that I did, these two um, professors from Stanford and Columbia who study women's leadership and work on it, their sort of hypothesis about this was that because if you're super good at math, that is like treading on the ground of the male genius archetype. You get dinged for it. Super depressing. By the way, I have never treaded on the male male genius archetype. Or gotten anywhere near it. No, never, never met it. Uh, (laughs) I once saw it across a crowded street. um, (laughs) It waved But it was, yes, but it was during Mardi Gras and I was uh, unsteady afoot. So we have listener chatter this week. You guys tweet listener chatters to us at at Slate GabFest and sometimes put them on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash GabFest. This week we had... Just so many. There were so many. And some of them were too long for me to read. And so um, I apologize to those of you who submitted things that are really super long because I wasn't didn't necessarily give them the justice they deserved. But the one I wanted to point out is from What Be the Future, at What Be the Future. And it's pointing us to a Vox piece providing an overview of the debate between Bill Gates and other development experts about how much progress we've really made on reducing global poverty. And this Vox story is quite extensive, and it's very interesting. It's about whether, in fact, billions or most of the world is better off than they used to be and how we measure it. And can we actually know whether this is true? And is it only a China effect? Has it only happened in China? And is $1.90 a day actually you know, enough to live on? Is that enough to take you out of poverty? Or you do really need $7 a day to be out of poverty? So it's a it's a very interesting, long article reviewing this quite extensive and complicated debate about the well-being of the poorest people on the planet. That is our show for today. The GabFest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. June Thomas is the managing producer of Slate Podcast. Gabriel Roth is the editorial director of Slate Audio. Special thanks to Alan Peng at CBS for engineering today. You can follow us on Twitter at at SlateGavFest and tweet your cocktail chatter to us there. Please come to our shows in Washington and Charlottesville 
in March and April, respectively. Go to slate.com slash live to get tickets for those shows. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We will talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. We're going to talk about Congress and how we could change Congress to make it a more functional branch of government. And I guess my question, I can't remember which of you pose this idea whether we are focusing on things that are realistic or unrealistic i think we should do both okay see if i can meet my mark um yeah seriously the first the first thing is the impossible thing that won't happen which is and i think i've written this um which is that all uh members of congress um should break up into whatever groups are appropriate but with ideological and geographical um diversity and be forced to go through several episodes of the locked room game in which they all have to solve those um puzzles under like the stress of time pressure and complexity and it seems to me to be both a way to force them to interact and engage with each other because even members of the same party don't like I do when I talk to senators all the time they say we we're like basically we're all in silos and then secondly it would be a forced way to make them cooperate um be generous in because you're under time pressure you can't be a total jerk or you'll fail and those who are total jokes jerks despite the fact that they're going to fail could just be ostracized so it would be a quick sorting technique so that's the one thing that'll never happen but should. But you are essentially prescribing icebreaker games. You're saying that if you improved the relationships among these people, that would really matter, right? Well, yes. I mean, really matter. But the other things I'm about to mention okay. are the things You're that bigger. That was just a teaser, Gabfesters. To listen to the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com slash Gabfest Plus.